0: You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus
1: Christ. Good morning, Free City. (laughs) Students, welcome back. It's good to see you all. I'm really excited for what the semester has to offer. My name is Kevin Gray. I will be reading the sermon text this morning. I've been attending Free City for about two and a half years now. I'm in the Stuart Weiniger City Group. Uh, as you could hear this morning, I play drums in the worship band. I've also helped out with the prayer team, greeting team, kids team, and whatever else needs to happen. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be reading from Matthew one, and it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Actually, uh, in your black Bibles, you can turn to it. It's on page 757. Uh, you might find one on uh, under your seat by your feet. So again, this is Matthew chapter 1 on page 757. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. "'And Ram, the father of Amminadab, "'and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, "'and Nashon, the father of Salmon, "'and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, "'and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, "'and Obed, the father of Jesse, "'and Jesse, the father of David, the king. "'And David was the father of Solomon.'" And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matthan, and Matthan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. <laughs> Who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Pray with me. Father, I am so grateful and so excited uh, for having church this morning and and looking around and and seeing uh, all these faces who are back here again uh, after a summer Father, I'm so excited to be in Matthew, to to look at who your son is and what he's done. And so, Father, I pray that as Ethan and everyone else who prays uh, uh, preaches this Sunday and throughout the rest of the series this fall, Father, would you open eyes, uh, whether we know Jesus or not, would we lean in uh, and see in a new way the glory of Jesus who is God with us. So, Father, we're, we're thankful for Matthew, and we pray that you would speak through Ethan. Uh, Father, we're grateful for this place to, to gather on Sunday mornings and sing songs and come under your word. Um, Father, it is a gift to, uh, to be part of this community. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless Central. Uh, they've probably been meeting for a couple weeks already um, as school has started, but, Father, we pray that as this Semester begins and continues. That you would be so present. That you would be uh, the healer. That you would show people uh, who the Savior is. Um, that there would be peace and rest um, in all the craziness that goes on in a school year. Uh, Father, we love you, uh, and we pray all these things for for Jesus' sake and in His name. Amen. Well, good morning.
0: That is. Uh... A bit more full this morning. Some of y'all are back. It's good to have you back. Students, welcome back. Man, um, I've loved catching some of y'all over the last couple weeks as you've kind of trickled back into town. And even talking with some of you in the hallway um, this morning. Hearing about your summer and and how God has been working in and and through you. Um, And the families. You know, we don't recognize this much. Uh, Maybe you guys don't recognize it. Your pastors recognize it. Uh, A lot of you families are gone in the summertime too, right? That's like a good vacation time. Welcome back. It's good to have you um, back as well. Vacation's wrapping up. The hot weather um, shows signs maybe of minimal relenting and uh, letting up. And, um, you know, if you've been out and around in Lawrence, uh, you can no longer make it across town or get into a restaurant in a reasonable amount of time. Our city's back at full strength, right? And uh, it's, whether or not we're ready, uh, we're rolling. So it's good to be back. We were downtown last night and leaving, and uh, we made the mistake of hitting down 9th Street and jumping on Tennessee. Word of the wise, stay away from one-way streets in the first, just in the month of August, let's say that. Maybe, we can maybe lean into September as well, but uh, it's it's a bit chaotic. Um, But it's good to have you guys back. Uh, my name is Ethan Spurley. I'm one of the pastors here at Free City, and uh, we're, we're really thankful that you've joined us this morning. Uh, if you're regular or if you're just checking out, if you're a guest with us this morning, um, really the mission of our churches is, is that we, ex- we exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's really what we mean by that. We mean uh, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what Jesus has done to forgive sin to defeat death and hell, and to restore us to the life that we were created to live, this good news it, it is meant, and, and God intends it, to transform every part of our life. That we would uh, not just let it transform our hearts, to give us fleshly hearts, hearts with the Spirit indwelling within us, Jesus, God with us, as we talked this morning, but that it would also um, help change, it would help us see and give us new eyes for the world around us. That we would have a vision... Um, a Godward vision of our work, uh, of school, of education. So many of you are students um, of your family, uh, of your uh, marital status, whether married or single. But you would see what God has put made you to be, and where He has put you. He He intends with great purpose that you would go and, and declare His goodness to a surrounding world. That Jesus would be seen as the Savior of the world. And so we want to live to that end. We sing to that end. We preach to that end. We fellowship to that end. It's so great to hear your voices just during even the offering time where you're just chattering. Your fellowship is filled with a connectivity that Jesus has bought by his blood. And it's a wonderful thing. And beyond that, um, we, we just want you to go even from this place. We say this every week, that, that you would go out and you would proclaim all of Christ in all of your life to the ends of the world, to in all in all the world. So this morning, you, uh, you may have heard the reading of this morning's passage. You heard Brother Kev jump up here, and uh, you thought to yourself, man, thank God I didn't get asked to read this morning's text. You know, we were hoping Brother Kev would trip up. He didn't. <laughs> Perhaps next time. We'll see. Uh, you know, I asked him a few weeks ago, not because he needed the prep, but because I knew he'd be jazzed up about it. And, uh, and you guys thought, it. like, it, it, it deserved an applause, and it gained an applause, and that was wonderful, but and we're so thankful for Kev. Kev does play the drums uh, a few weeks ago. You heard him preach. Um, he loves Jesus with all that he is, and, and so we're grateful to have him. He's a blessing to us, but, but truly, you may be here this morning, and, and we have wondering why, like, why do we take uh, extra time to read the first 17 verses of Matthew 1? Like, if you're honest, uh, this is a passage that we can be real that we've all skipped when reading the Bible, right? Along with all those clunky family trees, family lines, in the Old Testament, am I right? You've done this? Am I the only one who's done this? Yeah. All right. <laughs> or perhaps uh, you showed up for church in the, for the first time or the first time in a while, got back from summer or whatever your experience is this morning, and it might seem we're a bit out of touch. Uh, you're asking yourself, why are we reading the Christmas story uh, this time of year? Like a gimmicky Christmas in July, that would make sense. Uh, but right now, Christmas in August, we're a month removed, a few months ahead of time, your neighbors are already decorating for Halloween, we're out of touch with what's going on. But here's the thing, this morning we're starting a sermon series in the book of Matthew, and, and what, what that is, is like we're just going to track through the gospel of Matthew, and, and really um, we're going to hang in this gospel uh, up until Advent, Advent begins uh, the weekend of Thanksgiving, and so we'll be in this book throughout the semester. And what we'll see is uh, until until Thanksgiving, we'll take a break during Advent, but we'll we'll get up through the Sermon on the Mount, so through Chapter Seven, uh, God willing. But in Matthew, um, you'll see that, that Matthew in reading it, if, if you follow along in the Bible reading plan, our church has a Bible reading plan that we really would love for you to jump in. If if you read it regularly, you see kind of. Uh, the the fabric of our church and our liturgy, and and you'll even have a greater way to invest into and among the people of God within this church. Um, But within that, we, we are just getting to the end of reading the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you've been following with us in that, what you see is that Matthew is really one of the most, kind of the most closely tied of the Gospels to the Old Testament. And here's what I mean. Matthew is most concerned with showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Everyone cares about this, of course. Like all the Gospels, that's what they're saying. But Matthew, he he wants to help us understand and and see uh, the Gospel of Jesus in a distinctly Jewish way. Over and over in the book, we'll see that Matthew will pull us back to the Old Testament to help us understand what's really going on, to understand what's been going on. And it's helpful to understand for us... If we're looking at this, knowing where Matthew's writing from, that we would kind of look back before this and understand where he's coming from. It's helpful to understand how the Old Testament ends. So if you're new with us, we, we believe as a church, this is a distinctly Christian thing, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy three fifteen through 17 says, here's the thing, this is, uh, the, these scriptures are uh, the sacred writings and they're able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. And further, that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, and correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. The scriptures are sufficient. They're inspired by the Spirit of God. And and for the sake of getting to the point, here's what I mean. Across 66 books that we have in the Bible, they tell one unified story. There's a golden thread of salvation that really signals to us jesus christ and if we're going to read the scriptures with an approach where we see this and we're looking for this it's helpful to know some of the the seams of the story if you will but here's the thing about the old testament the hebrew bible so what you hold in your hand or what you might have under your seat or what's on your screen uh, is set up a, and arranged a little differently but if matthew's writing to a specific uh, jewish context the hebrew bible ends with chronicles did it just get dim in here maybe this okay maybe it's just me and being blinded completely but it ends in chronicles and here's what happens it's not so it's not malachi it's not like your bible there and and you could dive into this we're not going to get super into the weeds but i just want to help us see this a little bit it ends with chronicles and chronicles is understood as a unit it's not first and second but it's just chronicles and at the end of Chronicles, Israel, the people of God, are in exile. And there's a few things going on. There is one, no Passover. There is no king and no temple. But as the book ends, there's this ray of hope. The people are looking for a king, one who can reinstate the Passover and rebuild the house of the Lord because it's been burnt down. In the Old Testament, if it finishes in this way. In, in 2 Chronicles 36, it, it says this. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, Cyrus, he's one of the most powerful kings up until this point, and kind of ever. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that that it might be fulfilled. God, in his sovereignty, stirred up the spirit of the king Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And he also put it in writing. Here's what he said. He said, thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia. He says, Yahweh, the Lord, one true God, the God of heaven, he's given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And so we have this, no temple, no king, no Passover, God's people in exile. But there's this doorway that they could get back if someone among them would come up and in silence. It's the end of the Hebrew Bible. And then Matthew opens with this genealogy. It's as if Matthew steps onto the scene and he picks up this story and he says, hey, guys, let me tell you about that guy. He's, uh, he's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. We see this in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Matthew says, hey, here's the thing. Wise men understand him as the king of the Jews. And Matthew then starts hinting, as he he explains to us, that Jesus says, hey, in chapter 12 of Matthew, hey, there's something greater than the temple here when speaking of himself, which is specifically why Jesus cleansed the temple in Jerusalem in Matthew 21. And Jesus also said, I am able to destroy this temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And when he said that, there's something that's helpful that we would understand. He begins to talk about the temple and the time of year in which this was, it was the Passover. And right after that, he celebrated that feast with his disciples, and he instituted a new meal, the Lord's Supper. So Matthew, what he's doing in the seams of this, he's helping us understand that Jesus is the king. He is the Passover lamb, and Jesus himself is the temple of God, God's very presence. And we see this specifically today in verse 22. It says that all of this took place to fulfill, which means all that we've been told prior, what the Lord had, been, had spoken by the prophet in Isaiah. That the virgin would conceive and bear a son, and they would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is exactly where we're going to hang today. But it's really the, the entire book of Matthew that's built around this, that Jesus Christ is God with us. And this is the wonderful news that Matthew wants his audience to understand, so much so that he bookends his gospel with this reality. It says, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. They'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? We see that today. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself commissions his people, and he commissions us, and he says this. You probably know this. I want you to go and tell everyone about me. I want you to tell them the good news of who I am and what I've done. Tell, them, you know, tell it to everyone and take courage. And then he leaves them with these words. He said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The book of Matthew will end just as it begins with Jesus and with the promise of God with us. For Jesus is the son of the promise and the risen Lord who is with his people always. He is God with us to save us, us who are hopeless, who are sinful, who are broken. He is God with us, the king to bring the kingdom. He's God with us to right all wrongs. Jesus is God with us. Let me pray for us this morning. And as we look at this text, my my hope is that, that you would lean into maybe something that's familiar to you. And I'd like to actually even just give a little space for a moment for you to pray with me. That maybe you would, uh, I don't know where you've come in the the middle of the week, but but maybe you would just simply ask God to speak to you. That you'd offer your own prayer to God. That you'd engage this morning. Like you could just hear, but you would actively listen. And you would actively lean into the God of the universe who cares to commune with you. And who has given him his son Jesus and, and leaves you with his spirit. So that we would engage the spirit of the living God. So maybe consider the text that you've just heard that God of the universe has condescended to come to us. So in light of that, maybe you just ask him to to be true to his word and approach him in confidence. We'd ask him to hear, that we would hear from him this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, would you move in and among us this morning As we look at your word, as we look at Matthew, as we try to make sense of this long story. Would you help us see Jesus? Would you help us be honest about where we are? Would you maybe take a a familiar thing, a familiar story where we've like heard Emmanuel, God with us. Maybe we even have signs that we throw up in the month of December, but, but would you help us? see that anew? Would you recapture our imagination? Like would we be in this text and would we see it as glorious news to us that you sent Jesus to come be with us? Help us see Jesus, to bear witness to him and would you comfort us? Holy Spirit, lead us in all truth and and Father, we, we come as your kids asking that you would intervene in us. You be with us. Amen. So we're just going to look at this, that Jesus is God's God with us. Jesus is God with us. And we're just going to run deep, deep, deep into that. Look at verse 1. What we see is a God who keeps his promises. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, it says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, Matthew here in verse 1 begins with really kind of a a quotation from Genesis. He writes really the book of the genealogy, which also the book of the generations of Jesus. In the Greek, this would be uh, really leaning us back and and helping us recall uh, the beginning. Matthew's beginning his book in a sense by referring to the very first book of the Bible. He's writing a new Genesis, the story of a new creation, The very same phrase, this book of generations, is found in Genesis 2, 4, where we see the story of of creation, and also in Genesis 5, 1, where we see the generations of Adam. So Matthew is trying to help us see that this is the story of Jesus, and it's a retelling of the story of Israel. He's trying to just lay this out for us as plain as day, and lay Christ's lineage, Christ's story, on top of the really familiar story ...of the Jewish people to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises and Israel's longings. Notice, Matthew calls Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It refers to him as the Messiah. And here's the thing. In the story to follow, Jesus is not the Messiah that Israel was expecting... Like they would have absolutely been looking for more of a a political leader, one who was like strong and and rose to power and holds significant power that could deliver them and bring them peace with his strong arm. Which is specifically why they're still looking today. Matthew tries to throw his Jewish brothers and sisters a bone by providing Jesus' title because the baby that he's about to explain is going to confound all their expectations. And then notice two names that are tied to Jesus in verse 1. It says, David, son of David, and the son of Abraham. The first two mentions within the lineage of Christ are nothing less than two of the most prominent individuals in all the Old Testament, in all the Bible, actually. And this should be a huge flag waving in the air to say, hey, Messiah, right here, we got your boy. This is him. This is him. If you were with us over the summer, we've spent the last couple months in the Psalms, and in the way it worked out this year, where we usually in the summer we preach through the Psalms, um, we were almost maybe exclusively—I I don't really remember—but in Psalms written by David. And because of this, we multiple times highlighted how David would actually in, in his prayers, where he'd be in a low spot, he'd be hopeless, helpless. He, he would call out and, and call himself to remember God's promises to him as he faced trials, right? You remember this? Specifically, we would focus in on 2 Samuel seven sixteen, where God spoke to David, and he said, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. And what we see is David over and over clung to God's promise to him. You remember this? School hasn't even started, and we got a uh, comprehensive test from last semester, and you weren't here for it. But we have David. He's mentioned before, he's mentioned, and and mentioned before him, he's mentioned before Abraham, I'm sorry, but he chronologically comes after Abraham. Both men, though, are significant keys to seeing and understanding the seams of the Bible as a whole. But of the two, we also want to look at Abraham. Abraham significant. If you're familiar with the scriptures, Abraham is God's chosen patriarch. He was called by God to leave his country, his kindred, and to trust God to lead him. In Genesis 12, God promises to make Abraham a great nation, to bless him, to make him a blessing to others. If we look further in Genesis 15, we see that Abraham is childless and elderly. And despite his circumstances, God pulls him outside and and he says, hey, I want you to look up in the stars in the sky. Can you count those? Here's what I want you to know about the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you as many offspring as there are stars in the sky. I'm going to do this. He makes a promise to him. And then in Genesis 17, God says, hey, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant between me and you and your offspring, the ones that I've already promised you, and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Over and over and over, God promises. And he, is, he promises his faithfulness to his people. And here's the thing. I want you to know this in today. And then we're going to lean into this in the text today. God used Abraham. Abraham, who was sinful. Like, honestly, a pretty unremarkable guy. He came from a family who worshipped false gods. We see this in Joshua 24. And it's from Abraham Through David that we see all the way to Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus, the offspring, the son of Abraham, that all nations would be blessed. And through Jesus that David's throne will be established forever. Through Jesus who came, lived, died, and rose again. That all who would believe in him will be grafted into the family of God forever. He's the one seated on the eternal throne. You see, the promises made to Abraham in Genesis and made to David in 2 Samuel are the promises kept by Jesus as he arrives. God keeps his promises. Another way that Matthew helps us understand the plan of God is that this is not, that this is the plan of God, that this is not happenstance, is we see this mention of the generations. The generations are divided up into three sections, three sections of 14 generations. Now, there's like lots of conjecture. Uh, about the meaning behind this. The numbers, they kind of make some kind of acronym that uh, says David, has to emphasize David, make no mistake about it, that that Jesus is the Davidic king. We go there and that's that's great. But what I want us to see is, is just simply God makes great plans. They're perfect and he sticks to his plans. We see from Abraham to David, the growth of Israel into a kingdom. This is the first generation. And secondly, we see from David to Josiah, the decline of a kingdom. And then thirdly, we see Jeconiah to Jesus. But before Jesus, what we see is the destruction of a kingdom. God's people in exile. No king, no temple, which means no God among them. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. He ends the exile, and he makes the new kingdom where he is king. He ushers in this new kingdom, and he will fulfill the promises of God. So Matthew is specific in how he orders this genealogy. Make no mistake about it. This is God's plan. He's the one who sovereignly planned and accomplished this, and Jesus is the king. He is God who has come to dwell with us, Emmanuel. Matthew wants us to see this. Jesus is God with us. So if you're keeping tabs and looking out, You get the pencil out. You start making tally marks. You're going to see we're just a little bit shy of 42 generations. But I want you to know this. Matthew is not lying as he writes out this genealogy. He's writing to a culture who would undoubtedly understand what the numbers represent. 14 generations could perhaps be a way to say that God is doubly perfect. Because the number 7 would represent uh, perfection or completion. That God made a covenant. And absolutely fulfilled it. And here's the thing. Something about the covenant-keeping nature of God means this. God keeps his promises. He's not like you and me. He doesn't just pick and choose what sounds good today and and then cast away or forget the rest. He doesn't text you and and commit to do something and then in a few days forget what he said he was going to do. God is faithful to his promises. The promises of Abraham, the promises of David, and beyond. Friends, if you're in Christ, if you know Jesus as Savior, then God is faithful to you. You can claim the promises of God for yourself. And here's what I mean. Like when you consider yourself and you think about what's going on in your life, you get a feel for where, where you are. Some of you guys feel a whole lot. You need some direction. Some of you don't feel at all, and you need to pause and consider. But when you think about where you feel, we want you to anchor this in the Word of God. And so listen to this. Do you feel alone? Well, in Christ, God the Father, he says to you, he promises to you, hey, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you feel forgotten? Well, because of Jesus, the Father looks at you, and he says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come for you. Do you feel tired, worn out? Well, Jesus stands and he offers all who are weary, who are heavy laden, come to me and find rest. Do you feel broken? Well, in Christ, God has promised that he is making all things new. Do you feel that your sin is too heavy and too great? Well, here's the thing. Your sin is no match for God's grace. Ephesians 2 tells us that it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of works so that no one may boast. Do you feel afraid? Well, God will drive out fear with his perfect love. Do you feel sad? Well, in Christ, God has promised that one day he will wipe away every tear. And on that day when Jesus returns, there will be no more death and no more crying, no more pain. It will all pass away. We cling to the promises of God. And in fact, to make it in this world, to even have a shot at getting through this world, like you live in your humanity, in the brokenness of the world, you look around you, you experience brokenness within you and outside of you, the only way you'll make it through life is to cling to the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And the hope and reality of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, allows us to endure in this life. We're able to have hope for tomorrow because we cling to the promises of God in Christ today. The aches and the longings that we experience in this life will one day give way to the full realization of all God's promises in Jesus. So we cling to God's word. We cling to his promises. And that's the one thing we see in the text, like the primary thing we see in this, that God keeps his promises. But secondly, God keeps his promises in in unexpected ways. I want to highlight that there's probably some names in this lineage that you, if you knew more about them, you wouldn't expect to see them. I'll point out a few. We have Tamar in verse 3. In verse 5, we see Rahab and Ruth. And and then in verse 6, we see one uh, named the wife of Uriah. This is Bathsheba. And what's so remarkable about these people? Well, first of all, they're all women. It's absolutely striking that Matthew would include women in this lineage. Usually, men would be highlighted here. We would see this movement from father to son, and father to son. Men would have been actually viewed as somewhat more important societally. However, I want you to notice that these women included in this genealogy are are not just in a genealogy just that exists, but they are in the genealogy of not just a man, but the God-man. They are in the genealogy of Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. These women, they're mentioned alongside King David and the patriarch Abraham. And this is confusing. It's confounding. But this is what the gospel does. The gospel of Jesus Christ institutes a new kingdom. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has broken through as Christ came to be with us. He put on flesh. And as we realize our residence in this kingdom, here's what happens. Our deeply held cultural values, our assumptions, they're all replaced with the values of God's kingdom. You see, when we come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, our earthly identities, our cultural biases, and things of the sort begin to fall away as they're replaced with the values of God's kingdom. So here's the thing. In the kingdom of God, men are not more important than women. Men are, of course, different than women. Like, you can say that. You actually need to be able to say that. Men and women are different in roles. There's complementary roles, and together they bear the image of God to a surrounding World, men and women are made in the image of God, equally loved by God, equally valued God, also equally sinful before God and in need of Jesus. There's similarities here, right? But consider God's concern for women in this text and beyond, you just think about the overview of the scriptures. In the story of Jesus here, we have a teenage woman Mary tasked with giving birth to the Savior of the world. Small gig, right? Put that on your resume, right? That's the trump card, right? I I walked on the moon, that type of thing. And then we have Mary Magdalene, who first pronounces the good news of the resurrection of Christ. She tells the disciples, God uses a woman. And then we have women like Phoebe, Romans 16, Lydia in Acts 16, and we see Priscilla in Acts 18, and others who were servants and leaders in the church as the gospel advanced to the nations, the Spirit using women, God deeming them important in his mission to save and transform the world. So what we see in the kingdom of God is that not one class or gender is deemed more important than others, but we see men and women We see young and old, educated and uneducated. We see the rich and the poor, the famous, the obscure and unknown. They're all deemed by Jesus worthy. And further, in the kingdom of God, there's not one race that's superior. You see, Jesus, yeah, he he was Jewish. But in this family tree, we see Gentiles who are non-Jews, grafted in and this is scandalous like why would you include the the king who's the messiah with these people who aren't supposed to be a part of this line for us this matters you know we live in lawrence where we walk around our eyes are all wide open we're all wide awake to the world right we know what's going on the mantra here is that we value everyone regardless of walk of life skin color or whatever but here's the deal We exist in a predominantly white church, in a predominantly white city, and further, where affluence, like I don't know if you tried to buy a house here lately or pay taxes in this town. You kind of got to have some kind of money to exist here. Where affluence is the bedrock of zoning and planning of school districts and city codes. But here's the thing. When we look at the kingdom of God, when we understand the gospel of Jesus, we, we must realize something. It is incompatible to worship a God who loves the entire world but also hold a superiority complex based on skin color or nationality or what we have or have not. You track with me. As we see and continue in the book of Matthew, in the kingdom of God, the world that we know it is flipped upside down. Or rather, flipped right side up, right? Reoriented proper anew, the kingdom of God, it's where the, we'll, we'll look at this as we get into the, the Sermon on the Mount, where the first are last, where the poor are rich, where the sick are made well, where the lowly are exalted. It's all together. And this is wonderful news for all people. Another thing about the list of women here is is that they would not necessarily be, if you were going to include them, they would not necessarily be the matriarchs that you're like, man, let me get a picture of you and hang that up on the mantle so everyone can see it. You might not exactly be proud of these ladies, and here's what I mean. Tamar, she seduced her father-in-law in Genesis 38 and had children out of wedlock. Rahab was a prostitute, see this in Joshua 2. Ruth is a Moabitess, which was of a different race. She's not Jewish. See this in Ruth 1.4. And Bathsheba, we're not even given her name. She's listed as the wife of Uriah to actually highlight this problematic branch of the family tree. She was married, tied to a Gentile, not Jewish descent. And then further, the wife of Uriah, in tying her to David, she was sexually abused and exploited By King David. Friends, if it's you and me, like, we've got some pruning that needs to take place before we let Matthew send his first draft of the family tree to the publisher. You know what I mean? we got to clean this thing up. Like, maybe you experience this when you think about your own family. There's people maybe in your own family tree that you wouldn't include. Perhaps you would leave them out of stories if given the opportunity. Maybe you're too embarrassed to include them. Any of y'all uh, get into the Ancestry.com stuff? <laughs> Genealogy stuff, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you got someone in your family who's into it. Well, I've got a few friends and, uh, and some family members who are into it. And here's the here's funny thing about that stuff. Uh, when you get into that or you know someone who's into it, if you're into it, I'm not mocking you. I'm not mocking you. I'm just stating what's obvious to everyone else. It's letting you in, right? Uh, when we get into that stuff, there, there's tons of ways it can go, but here's usually what happens. Like, usually, people are dying to tell you, like, some obscure royalty that comes through their family line. You know what I'm talking about? They got, they got this running through their veins. Uh, I'm from so-and-so family, you know, in Scotland. Let me tell you about this. We got a, we got a coat of arms. It's better than your family's coat of arms. Uh, our family's actually so exquisite that we've got, like, our own print of plaid. And uh, we clothed everything in it. You know, we even put sweaters on dogs. We started that. You know, that type of thing. <laughs> it's the best plaid ever. It's so cool, I've even got, like, a $200 skirt that I just wear around the house. It's called a kilt. But here's what else goes. It's, it's kind of this story that's like, hey, my great, 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 you know, the story. You know how it goes. Great, great, great. Grandfather like saved the entire country from a group of traders who were going to overthrow it, something like that that 's how these stories work. You get into lineage because we often think of like genealogies as like almost this cover letter, a resume that we lay out before people. It gives us some kind of right standing. But you know what 's never ever laid out in uh, findings on ancestry.com hi i 'm ethan i'm three quarter. German descent, and uh, my three great-grandfathers, is Hitler, you wouldn't do that. That's not true. He's not connected to me as far as I know. <laughs> then y'all are sweating. <laughs> I'm not tied to Hitler, all right? All right? It's like, yeah, yeah. But here's the deal, no one does that. You wouldn't do that, it's just bad form. You leave the crazies out of the family tree, right? Everyone knows this, it's bad for your resume. (laughs) Man, talking about Hitler on a Sunday morning. Here's the deal. In Matthew 1, the point is, this doesn't happen. Matthew purposefully and pointedly tells us of Jesus' family. And here's what we need to see. The miracle of the genealogy is highlighting, it is the highlighting of the grace of God. The genealogy itself, the list of names, it speaks to us of grace. Tim Keller mentions it in this way. He says, in listing these undesirable family members, Matthew is helping us see that Jesus is not ashamed of these people. These are his mother's. He highlights the unexpected. He highlights women, not men. A different race, not Jews. Some of them are even immoral. And by holding up his own family line, Jesus is saying to us, anyone can be a part of my family. You're not saved by your heritage, like by who your dad is or what he's done or has not done. You're not saved by your accolades. You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace alone. You see, in Matthew 1, we have Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in verse 21, we see that God who is with us is the God who saves us. Jesus' very name screams it. Jesus is the equivalent of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. For saving his people from their sins is exactly what Jesus came to do. Matthew tells us this in verse 21. You are saved by grace. Friends, you and I are more in need of God's grace than we ever want to admit. And and this is far truer than we'll ever understand. Like, we regularly as people posture ourselves to look a certain way. If you just think about your week, when talking with friends, we share the highlights of our week, right? And we keep quiet about the undesirable, the low, the, the hopeless moments, the sinful moments. We show up on a Sunday morning like this, maybe wearing our best while we grit and grin because we want to look like we're doing all right. We curate our social media accounts to only post certain photos, the ones that will be most liked we only share content that will be approved of by the masses. We want to put on an appearance of having it all together while all the while we may be flat, despondent, groaning on the inside, a constant war with ourselves. I love what Pastor Sam Alberry says regarding the family lineage here in Matthew 1. He says this, Matthew's genealogy includes the outcasts, Scandalous and foreigner. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family Jesus comes for. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family Jesus comes for. Like consider David. He and Abraham, they're the namesake of this genealogy. They're at the very top. And here's the thing about David. You may know him as the one who killed Goliath writer of most of the psalms he's known by many as a man after god's own heart but also and perhaps maybe best known for his sin he sinned royally against god and bathsheba we we see him actually recount that this is not only against bathsheba but also against god as he writes psalm 51 as king with all-inclusive power, David noticed Uriah's, Uriah's wife on the, on the rooftop of, of the place next door. And knowing very well who she was and who her husband was, he was informed by his servants, had he not known, but he's informed. He calls her over with his power as king, sleeps with her, impregnates her, and in an effort to cover it up, winds up committing murder by doing away with her husband, Uriah, by putting him on the front lines. David sins, and in an effort to cover up his sins, sins all the more. The king, the first mentioned father in this lineage, is a screw-up. Now hear me out. The family that Jesus came from, is filled with sinners. Which means that the people that Jesus came for are not well put together family members. They don't have it all together. It's the family of God. They are the people of God that are held together only by the grace of God. So perhaps the question we need to wrestle with today is this. Are you maybe ready just stop trying to be impressive and actually receive Jesus? Or do you feel like you still need to put on a show to be received by, accepted by God? Like maybe you feel like you need to clean up and get things together before God will ever love you, like, like when you clean up your house before your friends come over so they think you got your life all well ordered. you will do that, right? All right. But what you need to know is this. God already knows the mess. And it's because he knows the mess that he sent his son Jesus in the flesh to be God with us. Jesus knows exactly what he's getting into. Like when he surveyed the world, he looks at you and he's not surprised by you. He's not ashamed of you. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Verse 21 says this, which means there is no sin so small that it can be overlooked. It's a problem. Sin's a problem. But also, it means that there is no sin so great that you cannot receive forgiveness. Family, it doesn't matter what you've done or who you are. You can be a member of Jesus' family if you turn to him, if you trust him as Lord of all, if you see him as he is. What's crazy is that the God of all creation, like the one who laid the ocean floor, who hung the stars in the sky, who crafts cells and molecules, who can never be exhausted or fully known, has come to us. He's made himself known, Emmanuel. He condescended, humbled himself, came to us, God with us to save us, and it's all grace. You see, there's no one in the family of God who deserves to be there. There is no one in the family of God who's earned their way into the family of God, and there's no one in the family of God who Jesus is ashamed of, because this family is a family of grace. I want you to listen to this just for a second. Some of you in this room are Christians, but you regularly wrestle with thinking you're not because of a heavy conscience. And here's what I mean. Some of you are so broken by the weight of your guilt and shame that it keeps you from experiencing real joy and real intimacy with God. You're kept up at night unable to sleep because of the temptations and sins that like, you should have had a good hold on by now. Sometimes things and actions as simple as driving across town or walking to class or scrolling social media and seeing former friends or a significant other It gives way to stir up condemnation for what you've done, how you've sinned, who you were. Maybe even as you walk into this place on a Sunday morning, or you enter into the home of your city group leaders throughout the week, you feel an accusation. You maybe even hear a voice in your ear that says, Who do you think you are? You're fraud, fake poser. You're regularly flooded with guilt, beat down with shame for the sins that you've committed. But hear me out on this. The voice in any given moment that tries to convince you that your shame is too great for God's grace is not, is not, read never, the voice of God. It is not. The Holy Spirit of the living God in your ear. It is the voice of the enemy. Now, don't hear me making light of sin. Sin is a problem, it is the problem. It separates you from God. A big enough problem that the God of the universe sent his son Jesus to come and die for sin. The thing about Christians is that we don't overlook sin, we hand over sin. To Jesus, and He in turn clothes us in His righteousness, brothers and sisters. It's the Spirit of God that inspired the Word of God, which includes the genealogy of Matthew. It highlights our sinfulness, but also God's grace. So you need to hear this. I don't want you to miss this. If you only take one thing away from today and you walk out of here with one thing on your lips and in your mind, it, it should be this Jesus is not ashamed of you, He's not ashamed to call you sister or brother. And this does not negate our deep need for grace, but it should bring more clearly into focus the depth of God's grace for sinner. God is full of grace for you. Another thing you need to realize is that though you are more sinful than you will ever recognize, you are also more valuable than you could ever imagine. Jesus is not only not ashamed of you, he actually delights to associate with you look at these names. Like, I'm not going to read back through them. We can call Kev back up here. But there's some who are incredible people, some who are crazy people, and lots of crazy situations even listed in the naming. You know, we could spend our time talking about sin and shame, and we must. But we must speak about the shame we carry, and the guilt that's on our hands because of sin, but we don't stop there. That's only half the story. You got to know the bad news to get to the good. The rest of the story is that the king of glory has stepped into a sin-sick world to save his people from their sins, that you, if in Christ, are now co-heirs with Christ, your royalty. You are not God. You're not Christ that you are far more valuable than you know. If you're in Christ, you are part of the family of God, holy and beloved, set apart <clears throat> a child of the king. Don't settle for less in your life. Take seriously the call to to live your life worthy of the gospel. Take seriously Christ and his kingdom. Paul instructs the Colossians in Colossians 3, and he says this, and this is for us. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To indeed, you were called into one body. And be thankful. Let this bleed out in gratitude from your life. Pursue Jesus. Seek his kingdom first and his righteousness. Here's the thing. Your name may not exist anywhere on page whatever in the Bible. It may not show up in verses 1 through 16, but because of Jesus, your name is found in the Lamb's book of life. And may this spur you on, this reality, this realization spur you on to live for the Lamb in this life. Christ Jesus the Lord has come to us, God with us, to save us. It's all grace. Look at Matthew 16. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Why doesn't it say that Joseph is Jesus' dad? It's to show us that Jesus' birth was unlike any other birth. The story of Jesus' birth tells us that this is not a story of just some other kid born in a tumble-down stable. It signals to us that Christ is indeed the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One. Look at Matthew 1:23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is known as the incarnation. Jesus, who is God, Put on flesh and dwelt among us. John 1 tells us. When Jesus was born, this is important. When Jesus was born, it, it was not his beginning. He was not created. He is the creator. He is truly God and truly man. If he stopped holding the universe in place, everything would fall away. To paraphrase a common refrain among the church fathers... Without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. The incarnation of Jesus ought to stir us to worship Jesus. Like how astounding is it that the one who upholds the entire universe by the power of his word became an infant infant, and had to learn to speak. Jesus, the one who does not change, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, had a mom who had to change his diapers. He had to be burped. He had to be fed. He cried out in the night, the witching hour, if you will. He's not a witch. It's like (laughs) glorious. (laughs) But why'd he do it? Jesus came to be with us, to save us. To save sinners like you and me, to be able to empathize with us, to understand us. You see, there's no crucifixion without the incarnation, no death without first a birth, no resurrection without a bodily incarnation. But not just to save sinners, to be with us. God didn't save you to make you better than you were five minutes ago and then send you on your way. He didn't save you and then abandon you. He saved you to be with you. Christian, taking all your sin, all your shame, all your hypocrisy and everything else that you could ever think of that makes you unworthy of God, considering it all, Jesus still came god with us to be with us to redeem us to restore us to make us sons and daughters to take away the shame and the guilt that we bear that we have entered and welcomed into our lives and to give us hope for the future we could not come to god in our sin so in our sin god came to us and this is the good news of the gospel This is the good news that every week we experience and we walk in and we live from it. And it's the good news that actually makes us stand up and walk down and come to the table of communion where we understand God came in the flesh to be with me because of sin. And if I look to Jesus, my sin's taken away and he gives me his righteousness. This is good news. And so this morning as we come to a time of communion... If you trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, if you understand that he came to take your sins, not just to take your sins and then roll out and do his own thing, but to take your sins, give you his righteousness, and then to be with you forever by his Spirit, and you're a Christian. And we encourage you to come as we get to communion. What we do in communion is, is really we... Remember, and we meditate on God's faithfulness to us in Christ, that he came to be with us. We remember that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. We recount that we've been delivered from our enemies, sin, Satan, and death, that Jesus came to save us from our sins. And Jesus' body, it was broken upon the cross. His blood poured out to atone to pay the price for sinners like you and me. And because he died, And because he resurrected and is alive and is with us by his spirit, he he then says this to us today. He closes Matthew's gospel and Jesus says, surely I'm with you. The very ends of the age. God with us. Jesus is God with us. This morning as we come to communion, we remember that Jesus is God with us. The way we take communion here is we tear off a piece of bread. It would actually be torn for you and handed to you. And then you can choose to dip it in either uh, the grape juice, which is in the clear glasses, or in wine, which is in the stoneware glasses. There's also a gluten-free option. If if you're celiac or or bread is no good for you, there's uh, a gluten-free cracker on the table if you'd like rather to do that. But what we do is we come to the table and we remember that we were a people who were hopeless. And God has come to be with us. He's made us a people in Jesus. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. One other movement as we move to communion is we have a prayer team. Behind these black curtains on either side, we have people with just a lantern that says prayer team. And so if just this morning you come in here carrying burdens of, of shame or guilt, uh, you, maybe you feel like you've got an ailment that you're like, man, God, would you heal me? We would love for you to, as we get up and move to communion, that you would go to those curtains. You would... Don't go to the curtains, go to the people at the curtains. And that that you would just ask them to pray for you. And they're going to pray that God would intervene in your life, that you would experience Emmanuel, God, with us. Amen? And pray for us. Jesus, we praise you that you are the promised one. Like, this is not some fickle story, but it is one of your faithfulness, Father, in sending your Son to make us right, to draw up a people And so this morning, as we um, come from so many different places, we come experiencing a week in different ways. We uh, come with anticipation or fear of stepping into what tomorrow brings or this afternoon brings or next month brings. Jesus, would you be with us to bring us peace? Would we move from this space this morning and into all of our lives with the promise of, of, of you, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us in our hearts in our minds, on our ears. By your spirit, would you stir us up to be a people who live for your glory in in all of life, Jesus. Amen, amen. Come to the communion table when you're ready as we sing.